Shalom. We are so glad you're joining us on this episode of Our Hope. We created this podcast as a resource for followers of Yeshua, where they can learn more about Israel, the Bible, and the Jewish community. Together, we discuss Messianic apologetics, dive into Scripture, and hear stories from Jewish believers in Jesus. If you've enjoyed our podcast series, please consider supporting us at ourhopepodcast.com support. You could also help us by sharing this podcast on social media, talking about it with your friends and family, or by writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so grateful for you, and we hope this episode of Our Hope is both enlightening and encouraging. Welcome to Our Hope, a production of Chosen People Ministries. Is almost over. We are close to counting day 50 of the Omer. A few weeks ago, we explained the counting of the Omer in our episode entitled Counting the Omer with Hope. Our special guest, Robert Walter, spoke about the reason for counting the Omer and what it is we are anticipating. He also unpacked how it is relevant for believers in Yeshua today. As we approach the end of our counting this week, we are preparing to celebrate Shavuot. We are so happy to have Robert back on to discuss this important holiday in Jewish culture and what it means for believers in the Messiah. Robert, welcome back. Thank you, Abe. So it's been a little time since our last podcast and um, not much has really changed in New York. We know that uh, celebrating Shavuot is going to look a little bit different this year. So I'm just wondering, how are, will your family and your maybe your congregation celebrate it? So yeah, obviously Shavuot is going to look a little different this year. Uh, one thing that our congregation is going to be doing is we're going to have an all-night Zoom uh, Bible study and party together. Wow. So wait, so literally all night? All night. We'll probably wow. be on there until about 3 a.m. Wow. That's awesome. So what does that look like? You know, I think we're still trying to figure it out, how it's going to work on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. But uh, one cool thing is that we have enough people around the world. Uh, so we have someone who's going to do the shift uh, on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And then we have a guy on the West Coast out in LA who's three hours behind us. And he'll wow. do the shift after that. And then we have someone in Hong Kong who <laughs> is like a full 12 hours uh, away from us. Uh, so they're going to handle the really late night shift. That is awesome. That's so cool. Okay. So you, you know me by now. I love food. Uh, yes. What is a favorite food item? Maybe one of your favorite food items or just in general, something that's usually eaten during Shavuot. Right, right. So uh, usually dairy products are eaten. Okay. So uh, dairy desserts, cheesecake is probably my favorite. Yeah. And if I had my choice, it would be uh, Junior's cheesecake uh, from from the city, but uh, not sure I'll be able to have that this year. Probably not. You should make it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so let's jump into Shavuot a little bit more. This holiday, it's a big one for Jewish and Christian communities, and I think the first question we need to answer is, what is Shavuot? 
Well, yeah, it is a pretty big holiday. And uh, Shavuot is actually, it's another one of these holidays that's found in Leviticus chapter 23, which is really such an important chapter because the entire chapter, God is laying out and giving uh, his appointed times. So in Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 21, that's where we find the command to celebrate Shavuot. Uh, and Shavuot, it's Hebrew, and it literally means weeks. Mm. Uh, and usually in, in Christian communities, the holiday is known as Pentecost, mm -hmm. uh, which means 50th. So when we look in Leviticus 23 and we ask ourselves, well, why are these, you know, why, why is it called Shavuot or Pentecost, mm -hmm. weeks or, or 50th? It's because when we read the command, it says, you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. Mm -hmm. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. And like we mentioned in the last podcast, this is the only uh, festival where it, it depends on counting, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So all the other holidays that are given, uh, there's some like particular day. Mm -hmm. uh, like Passover begins the 14th day of the first month, uh, Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the seventh month, and so on and so forth. But with Shavuot, there's no particular specific day that's given. Right. You must count. So that's, you know, again, the counting of the Omer, mm -hmm. uh, which shows the connection between Passover and Shavuot. So how is Shavuot celebrated by the Jewish community today? So the Jewish community today will celebrate Shavuot. Uh, first of all, it's a it's a special Sabbath. So it's a day of rest. Uh, it's a day of, uh, of there's special prayers, uh, special gatherings in the synagogues. Mm -hmm. And again, I already mentioned uh, the dairy products. And right. Lots of desserts are involved, cheesecake, blintzes, ice cream, etc. Uh, and then another big thing that happens, again, I already alluded to it, but there's an all-night Torah study right. that takes place. So why dairy products? So why dairy products? There's honestly, there's so many different reasons that are given. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, it's a tradition that developed throughout the, the centuries. Uh, one tradition suggests that um, that it's because Israel is the land flowing with milk and honey. Mm. Uh, another suggestion is that um, it's a celebration of the kosher laws, sure, um, which you know it's part of what is going on during Shavuot. So it's not a great holiday if you're lactose intolerant, basically. It it is not a good holiday <laughs> if you're lactose intolerant. No. Okay. <laughs> okay, and so they also uh, they do some sort of all night Torah study. Is that right? So yeah, so a, a big part of the Jewish celebration today of Shavuot is an all-night Torah study. Hmm. Um, and the reason for this is because at the heart of the celebration of Shavuot, it's a celebration of the moment, the day, when God gave the Torah to Israel at Mount Sinai. Wow. So, okay, so they're pulling an all-nighter and they're eating dessert. Sounds a little bit like college. <laughs> It really does. <laughs> or the or the third trimester of pregnancy. <laughs> so how did Shavuot become a celebration of giving the Torah? So when we look in the the text, in the in the Bible, um, we see that again, the the celebration of Shavuot is connected to Passover. Mm -hmm. And if you look at when the Passover took place in Egypt, in Exodus 12, uh this 
you know, monumental um, salvation deliverance mm-hmm. event that God does for Israel and setting Israel free from slavery in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And uh, they leave. And when did that take place? Well, it was right in the middle of the first month. Mm-hmm. And then we we follow the journey. They cross the Red Sea. Uh, they reach the other side. And then there's a bit of wandering that goes on. And then you come to the beginning of Exodus chapter 19 and verse 1. Uh, which states, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Mm -hmm. So um, the way that the sages and rabbis of old have read Exodus 19.1, it's it's read as if it's uh, referring to the first day of the third month. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to Passover and you start counting those days, uh, and again, this is not the Gregorian calendar um, that has 30 or 31 days for each month. This is a, um, a Hebrew calendar, right. which is a lunar calendar, which follows the cycles of the moon. So you've got 28 or 29 days per month. Mm-hmm. So if you start looking from the first month, uh, right in the middle, the 14th, the 15th day of the first month when Passover takes place, mm-hmm. and then you count all the way to the beginning of the third month, and then you keep reading the narrative in Exodus 19... Uh, And you see that a few more days go by until the moment when God gives Israel the Torah at Mount Sinai. And if you add it all up, it brings you to about 50 days between the Passover event in Egypt and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Why is the giving of the Torah so significant in Jewish history? So the giving of the Torah at Sinai is viewed uh, as really just such a a monumental event in uh, Israel's history. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, uh, many Jewish communities, especially the more religious, the more orthodox or even ultra-orthodox communities, uh, view the Torah as the foundational document Mm. that uh, shapes and defines so much of who Israel is. So uh, first of all, some of the things that we see in the text uh, in Exodus, we see that God begins to speak to Israel, mm-hmm. okay, at Sinai. Like they heard his voice. Right. And the response of Israel was they started freaking out. I'm terrified, you know? yeah. Uh, yeah, terrified. <laughs> they, they said to Moses, look, we can't handle this, right? I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah, yeah, We can't yeah. handle this. You go talk to God for us. Um, so... It's interesting because it's kind of like a recognition, a national recognition on Israel's part that they need a mediator right. to go between them and God. So we see God speaking to Israel, and ultimately uh, he gives Moses the the tablets with the commandments on them. Mm-hmm. And the literature, the rabbinic literature tells us that what took place there mm-hmm. was like a marriage, mm-hmm. like a marriage covenant being sealed between God and Israel. God is the bridegroom, Israel the bride. And the Torah is like the marriage contract. So even today in Jewish weddings, uh, a, a big part of the Jewish wedding, uh, dating back you know, for thousands of years, has been what's called the ketubah or mm-hmm. the ketubah, right? Which is the writing down of the contract, the marriage covenant, the terms mm-hmm. of the agreement between the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, so the Torah is viewed as that Ketubah, that that uh, marriage covenant, and I, I would imagine that the Torah also shapes Israel's identity. Yes, absolutely. So going forward from Sinai, uh, 
part of the impact that the Torah has had on the Jewish people and really on the world um, has been to uh, to shape Israel's identity. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Torah functions as a moral guide for the people. It's right. where sin is defined. It's where righteousness is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the, the Torah was used to, to convict of sin. Right. Uh, but even more than that, the Torah was also something that was uh, preparing Israel and equipping Israel for her mission as a nation. So the Torah wound up shaping Israel's culture in every way. Religiously, okay, you have the, the sacrificial system is right. found in the Torah, uh, where we learn about uh, how innocent blood must be shed to pay for the sins of the guilty. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's all in the Torah. Uh, you find, uh, so religiously, uh, even judicially, okay, the justice system, just weights and measures were introduced in the Torah, uh, which was so um, radical, honestly, compared to other cultures in the ancient Near East. So you take one command, for example, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right. right? We're all familiar with this. Uh, it's found in the Torah. Uh, Yeshua later on in the Sermon on the Mount uh, references this command. Uh, but really, when you go back to when it was given, it was something that, that was gracious and merciful because it put a limit mm-hmm. on how far one could go in retaliation. Right. So if somebody took your eye, you, it, you did not have the, uh, the authority mm-hmm. um, to take their life uh, as retaliation. No, mm-hmm. you could only go so far as taking their eye. Okay? Right. I'll also add that uh, the Torah shaped the government of Israel, how uh, you know, kings and priests and prophets, how all of these offices would function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it shaped the economy of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, tithing is introduced in mm-hmm. the Torah. And we could even say that the, the Torah Bible-based tithe was more than just 10%. If you really add up all the tithing that Israel was commanded to do, it came to about like probably 23% of your annual income. Wow. But that wasn't uh, so, just, was, was that just money or was it also just like if you had a farm, you know, you would kind of give... Uh, grains and things like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't just mo- money. It wasn't just coins or, you know, yeah. currency. It was, uh, it was fruits. It was grains. It was your crops. Right. Uh, but the bottom line is that you are, you know, you were to give and this right. shaped the economy. Uh, so the Torah impacted so much, even down to the kind of food that you would eat. The Torah defined what food is and what right. food isn't. Right. So something you said is very interesting. Uh, you you mentioned that the Torah equips Israel for their mission. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so if we look at um, <clears throat> what God was doing with Israel, when he brought Israel out of slavery uh, in Egypt, when he brought them to Sinai and he you know took them through the wilderness for 40 years, and uh, as they were entering into the promised land uh, as a nation— because the, the last time before that, before they entered into the promised land as a nation, the last time they were there, it was just a family. Okay? Mm-hmm. It was uh, Jacob and his, and his sons. Um, but now they're a nation. Okay? And God was preparing Israel uh, to be set apart and to have this mission, to be a kingdom of priests uh, and to be ultimately a light unto the nations. Mm-hmm. So Israel was supposed to share the truth of God with her Gentile pagan neighbors. 
You know, we, we could say in, right. in some way, Israel was supposed to be evangelical. So this next question I'm going to ask you uh, could be its own podcast, but I'm wondering maybe you can just kind of summarize it for, for some of our listeners. Because when you say Israel was supposed to be allied to the nations, it was supposed to be evangelical. Many people could take that and say that, you see, the church has, has replaced Israel. What do you say to people who think that? Yeah, so that that's um, I'm glad you kind of followed the progression there, uh, because some people do say that some very well-meaning brothers and sisters in Messiah uh, have come to that conclusion. But my response is that just because you know we're not just beating Israel up, okay? We're not trying to put Israel down and say, "Ha ha, you messed up," okay? And now uh, we we got it right. No, that's that's not the attitude of Jesus. That's mm-hmm. not the attitude of the disciples. That's not the attitude of the New Testament. Um, yes, when Yeshua came the first time, Israel as a nation rejected him. Many individual Jewish people believed in him, uh, but the nation as a whole, you know, collectively rejected mm-hmm. him. But this does not mean that God's promises to the nation of Israel are now null and void. Right. Uh, God's promises are true. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, Paul uses the word irrevocable. Right. They, they cannot be revoked. Amen. And uh, we are still waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. And mm-hmm. I believe that they will uh, come to pass in their fullness when the Messiah returns. Thank you for that explanation. Uh, it, it was just brought to something to mind. Uh, someone I know, Esther Allen, uh, who's a writer, um, and she's also a part of our Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem. Um, initiative. And she said something very interesting. She said, if God truly replaced Israel with the church, we would be naive to think that he wouldn't replace the church with something else or someone else. Kind of just wrapping up, you know, Israel's uh being equipped for their mission by the Torah. What does geography have to do with this? What does their location have to do with this? Yeah, so wonderful question. Um, Because God is so good. God is sovereign, and God has this plan, and he's had this plan in in motion for a very long time. And he even, uh, you know, if you look at the location of the land of Israel, it's like God sovereignly orchestrated and chose this particular spot to have his people Israel uh, inhabit and live there uh, and fulfill their mission or, you know, seek to try to fulfill their mission. Uh, So if you look at the location of the land of Israel, right, it's this small little sliver of land about the size of New Jersey, okay? Coincidence? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was was born and raised in Jersey, all right? I always like to uh, claim... You mean any, throw any, it in our face. <laughs> yeah, any good positive thing about Jersey, okay? It's it's about the same size as uh, as Israel. Well, you got right? one thing going for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, so if you look at the location of Israel, again, it's this small little sliver of land right on the Mediterranean coast, but it sits at the crossroads of three separate continents, mm-hmm. all right? If you go to the south, you have Africa. If you go to the east, you have Asia. If you go to the north and to the west, you enter into Asia Minor and Europe. Mm-hmm. And in the ancient Near East, there were two uh, major trade routes that connected these continents uh, that passed directly through the land of Israel. 
So one of them, it followed the Mediterranean coast. It was called the Way of the Sea. Mm -hmm. And then the other one uh, connected, it went from uh, Africa, from Northern Africa, up through the land of Israel, and then it went into the east, and it was called the King's Highway. Mm. Um, so the idea, the expectation was that ancient people from these different nations would travel on these trade routes, they would pass through the land of Israel, and what would they experience? They would see and experience with their own eyes the love of God being lived out among Israel. Um, they would see that just and fair judicial system. Mm -hmm. They would see the proper treatment of women. They would see the proper treatment of the foreigner. Uh, they would see a sacrificial system that, uh, that showed innocent blood being shed for guilty people to, uh, to atone for sins. They would see so much of this. They would see the love of God, again, being lived out among his people. And uh, they would be drawn to this God of Israel. Now, uh, unfortunately, when we look at the history, we see that in many ways Israel fell short in that mission. So it's like having the Torah written on tablets of stone was not enough. And we see this in the prophets, mm. okay? We begin to see in Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, this idea that the Torah needed to be written on hearts of flesh. So... How is Shavuot significant in the New Testament? When we come to the New Testament, we see a major event take place on Shavuot. Okay, it's in Acts chapter 2. So this is the setting here. It's in Jerusalem. This is the very same year that Yeshua died on Passover on the cross. This is the very same year that he rose from the dead, most likely on the Feast of Firstfruits. And now all of a sudden the disciples are there, Yeshua, uh, the counting of the Omer is complete. Yeshua has already ascended into heaven. His last instruction uh, to the disciples was for them to wait in Jerusalem for the power from on high. So here they are in Jerusalem waiting, and then all of a sudden this Sinai-level event begins mm -hmm. to unfold, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. Wow. And it's significant because it was on Shavuot when this happened. You know, I'll just, I'll read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 here. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So Robert, based on what we've seen with the parallels between Passover and the death of Jesus, I assume that there are lots of connections between the giving of the Torah at Sinai and the giving of the Spirit in Acts 2. Can you talk about this? Sure, yeah. Um, and there definitely are lots of parallels between the two. And I think it's best if we just break down these par parallels into two different categories. Mm -hmm. uh, first, the circumstances surrounding both events. Right. Okay. There was a lot that was taking place, uh, similarities between what was going on with the circumstances. And then the other has to do with the function of what was given, the function of the Torah as it compares with the function of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that, the circumstances. So the circumstances, um, one thing that they have in common, okay, the giving of the Torah at Sinai and then the giving of the Spirit in Jerusalem, 
uh, both took place after some major events, major redemptive events that took place at Passover. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, with the giving of the Torah at Sinai takes place after Israel was set free and delivered from slavery uh, on Passover. Okay, and with the giving of the Spirit on Shavuot, it took place right after the very same year, uh, right after Yeshua became the Passover Lamb and and provided deliverance and a way out for us from slavery to sin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another thing, mountains are involved. Okay. Mountains of God, right? Mount Sinai is uh, considered like the mountain of God. And at the same time, Jerusalem is a, is a mountainous city. Okay. There's three uh, major sort of peaks there in Jerusalem. And when I say peaks, I'm not thinking like, you know, snow caps, uh, Mount Everest or anything. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are just mountainous regions. Okay. And on Mount Moriah, that is where the temple stood. So, Again, the mountains of God are involved. Another similarity that we see uh, is the mighty elemental sounds that are going on, mm-hmm. right? In Exodus 19, verses 16 and 18, uh, we see that at Sinai, there was, there was thunder, lightning flashes, a thick cloud upon the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And then, you know, we come to Acts chapter 2, and again, we see these mighty elemental sounds. Right. Uh, you know, I just read it, but I'll say it again, right? There came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and, and even uh, the, uh, the tongues of fire, right? Uh, mm-hmm. coming down just as and dwelling upon each one of the disciples there uh, and so too at Sinai the Lord descended upon the mountain in fire mm-hmm. all right and what's also interesting I'll just sort of throw this in but there's later rabbinic tradition uh, again about the giving of the Torah at Sinai and um, one of the traditions is really is really unique because um, it says and this is in the the Babylonian Talmud in um, uh, tractate Shabbat uh, 88b is the uh, the folio, the page number, and uh, it describes the giving of the Torah at Sinai, and when Israel heard God speaking at Sinai, and the tradition says, uh, it says this, every act of speech that came forth from the mouth of the Almighty was divided into 70 languages. Wow. So the idea is that Israel heard God speaking in many different languages, in 70 different languages. 70 is usually a number that represents the nations. Mm. Uh, so then you look in Acts chapter 2, and uh, you know obviously we see that the disciples were empowered by the Spirit. They began to speak in many different languages so that everybody who was there representing all the different nations uh, in Acts chapter 2 uh, could understand uh, the message. Right. So I, I just want to add that it's impossible for us to put a definite date on that rabbinic tradition, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just, it's interesting to point it out. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the inscribing God's Torah at Sinai versus on the hearts of flesh. Can you just quickly talk about those two things? Sure. Yeah. So this is, again, another one of this, the, uh, the circumstantial um, uh, similarities or parallels between Sinai the giving of the Torah at Sinai, and the giving of the Spirit. So uh, God's Torah at Sinai was inscribed on tablets, on stone tablets. Right. Okay. 
Exodus 31.18 tells us that God himself inscribed the commandments onto those tablets. It says, with the finger of God. Mm. All right. Now, in the New Testament, um, we see that here the Torah, or the, the Torah was being inscribed not on tablets of stone, but again, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy in Jeremiah and in mm. Ezekiel, right. where they talk about uh, the Torah being written on hearts of flesh. So Jeremiah Jeremiah words it in Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, I will put my Torah within them, and on their heart I will write it. Mm. And that's all within the new covenant promise. And in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, he writes, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow. So the language in both of these prophecies really marry together the 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 work of the Spirit in the heart of the new covenant believer, mm-hmm. and they they marry it together with the Torah, yeah. with, with the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances, uh, and really the again, just the work that God does in our hearts. So you just talked us through all the circumstances. So now let's get into the function. Sure. Yeah. So again, if we compare the function of the Torah with the function of the Holy Spirit, again, there are some similarities, right? We mentioned earlier how the the Torah was to serve as a moral guide, uh, convicting us of sin, pointing out sin, setting Israel apart, uh, equipping Israel for service, for uh, for their purpose, for their mission. Uh, well, the Holy Spirit does a lot of these things too. Okay, uh, the Holy Spirit is like a moral guide for us. Mm. The Holy Spirit, He convicts us when we do wrong. Okay, right. the Holy Spirit sets us apart, sanctifies us, seals us. Is the language that's used in the New Testament, and ultimately, uh, when we receive Yeshua, when we are born again, and we are redeemed by His blood, uh, He takes up residence inside of us by His Spirit, and through that Spirit, we are equipped for our mission, for our purpose, for our service of God. So really, we have everything that we need when we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have the gifts that He's given us. We have everything we need to fulfill our calling. So in Acts chapter 2, we see the biggest heart change in Peter, Mm. right? Peter, um, earlier in John 21, Uh, Peter, after the death and the burial of Yeshua, and even after the resurrection of Yeshua, Peter, what does he do? He goes back to what he knew before, before Yeshua, right? right? He went back to the Galilee and he went fishing. He returned to the nets. But here in Acts chapter two, as he is now empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, Peter stands up and he, he proclaims and he gives this beautiful apostolic sermon uh, where he is appealing to the thousands and thousands of Jewish people who are there in Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot. Mm-hmm. And we see the response. We see that 3,000 people come to believe in Yeshua at that day. New life is experienced through Yeshua. So thank you for you know talking about Peter and his... Um, his experience with receiving the Holy Spirit. So this kind of brings to mind a question, did the Holy Spirit 
have a role in the Old Testament? Did anyone in the Old Testament have the Holy Spirit at any point? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. And we do see the Holy Spirit ministering in and through and on people in the Old Testament, in the mm-hmm. Tanakh. I mean, we, we have examples with David. David operates in the Spirit on occasion. Uh, but also I want to point out something that's real interesting about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the expectation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So in the Torah itself, in the book of Numbers, we have this account where Moses uh, is getting some help from 70 elders. Mm -hmm. And he gathers these 70 elders from the men of Israel, and the Lord puts his spirit upon these 70, Mm -hmm. okay, to to help Moses bear the burden of the people. Uh, So some time goes on. Toward the end of Numbers chapter 11, we get this account where two of these 70 guys are continuing to prophesy in the camp, uh, apparently after uh, the appointed time when they should have been. So a young man runs to Moses to tell him that these two guys are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, says to Moses, he said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And then Moses' response, I think, is so telling and significant for us because it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into, you know, where things are headed Mm -hmm. and even what Moses hoped for. Because he says in Numbers 11, verse 29, it says, Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. So Moses' hope and expectation it's almost like he did the math and considered what it would be like if all of God's people had the Holy Spirit and the kind of impact that it would have. And here we are today, right, in, in this era of the new covenant, where the new covenant has become a reality, and we have God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Uh, we're, we're sort of like fulfilling Moses' dream here, uh, and, and the dream and the hope that the Tanakh, the Old Testament, was pointing forward to. And really, this is all, it's leading us somewhere. You know, we're not there yet. We're not in that place of glory yet. But a big part of our ministry now as the body of believers in this world, uh, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit in Mm. everything that we do. Mm. So in light of all of this, how should believers today respond to Shavuot? Well, I believe it's important for believers to celebrate and recognize uh, what God did on Shavuot. Okay, and not tossing aside uh, what he did at Sinai as if that was insignificant. No, that was that's part of the story. Okay, that's part of uh, the unfolding plan of God, and it helps us so much to understand more what God did in Acts chapter two when He gave the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on Shavuot. It helps us understand it so much more when we look at it, when we read it, when we understand it uh, through the lens of Mount Sinai. And I think overall, we as believers need to realize that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, uh, Yeshua, on Passover. We have the hope and the promise and the assurance of the resurrection to eternal life. That Mm -hmm. is our inheritance. Mm -hmm. And now at this point in history, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that he poured out on Shavuot Mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago. And he's done it. We've been equipped for a purpose Mm -hmm. so that we could be busy doing the work that God has called us to do as we wait for the return of our King, Yeshua. So we have everything we need. 
We have everything we need to be a light, to bring the gospel to the Jewish people first and also to the Gentile. As Counting the Omer comes to an end, many of us are still waiting to get back out into the world and leave behind this time of quarantine. We may grow weary in the waiting, but Shavuot reminds us that every day we have two major reasons to rejoice. God has given us his word and he has given us his spirit. He empowers us to live for him and do his work, and he will continue to give us his joy as we wait for change to come. We are taking a short break over the next few weeks, and we will return on Monday, June 8th. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was made possible thanks to Dr. Mitch Glazer, Nicole Vaca, Grace Sui, Elisabetta Karp, Kyron Bautista, and Robert Walter. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Our Hope. If you like our show and want to know more, check out OurHoPodcast.com or ChosenPeople.com. See you next time.